PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Guidelines are meant to help them and not to impose certain beliefs on them. So it's not a cookbook. So part of spending less is cutting down on practices that don't work. And their mantra is they want to pay for what works. At the very least, what baseline treatment does is stop bad and harmful treatment. Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast. International Perspectives on the Development and Use of Clinical Guidelines in Physical Therapy. Dr. Philip Vanderwees is chair of the Guidelines International Network and lead author of the October 2011 PTJ Profession Watch article on international guidelines. In today's discussion, Dr. Vanderwees is joined by fellow guidelines experts. From Australia, Dr. Trudy Rebick, and from the United States, Dr. Joe Godges. And now, our moderator, PTJ Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Daniel Riddle. Welcome to the Physical Therapy Journal podcast discussion entitled International Perspectives on the Development and Use of Clinical Guidelines in Physical Therapy. The October 2011 issue of Physical Therapy contains a very important paper entitled Development of Clinical Guidelines in Physical Therapy, Perspective for International Collaboration. The physical therapy profession has a substantial evidence base with over 20,000 trials of physical therapy applied interventions at last count, and we need a way to interpret this evidence in a meaningful way, and clinical practice guidelines provide us with just such a mechanism. The paper we're discussing today takes a big picture worldwide view and builds a case and a strategy for developing an international approach within the PT profession for planning and writing clinical practice guidelines and evidence statements that can potentially be customized for different countries and different healthcare systems. We will discuss some of these issues today during the podcast. First, I want to introduce our participants. We are very excited to have three experts on the topic to discuss the issue. Dr. Philip Vanderwees is the lead author of the paper that will serve as the basis for our discussion today. Philip is a physical therapist and human movement scientist from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. He finished his doctoral thesis in 2009, which evaluated the process of development and implementation of clinical practice guidelines. Philip? Thank you, Dan. Thank you for providing the opportunity to address this important issue, and I look forward to the discussion today. We're also very pleased to have with us Dr. Trudy Rebeck. Trudy is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist and a lecturer in musculoskeletal physiotherapy at the University of Sydney in Australia. Trudy is the co-author of two national multidisciplinary guidelines in Australia produced under the auspices of the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia. Thank you, Dan, and it's an honor to be invited to be part of this discussion, and I look forward to it. We also have with us Dr. Joe Gorgeous. Joe has recently been appointed to his second term as the ICF-based Clinical Practice Guidelines Coordinator for the Orthopedic Section of the American Physical Therapy Association. He is an Associate Professor at the University of Southern California, where his primary role is to provide clinical education for orthopedic and sports physical therapy residents and fellows. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be part of the discussion. First, before we get to the questions, I'm going to ask Philip to take just a couple minutes to summarize his paper and the basic arguments regarding the need for clinical practice guidelines in the world of physical therapy. Philip? 
Thank you, Dan. As you mentioned in your introduction, the evidence base for physical therapy has increased rapidly in, in the last 20 years or so. And one of the aims of clinical practice guidelines is to summarize this evidence and to assist practitioners in their daily clinical decision-making. So, in fact, the guideline is supposed to help practitioners to not have to look for evidence themselves, but it's provided for them and it's supposed to provide recommendations for their daily activities in, for physical therapy diagnosis and treatment. Now, having said that, the guideline development world, so to say, is fairly young, only existing for also maybe 15 to 20 years. In the last 10 years, the guideline field has developed very rapidly. So what we've seen in the last five to 10 years is that international collaboration has been growing. There's an international guideline community, which is the Guideline International Network, and I happen to chair that international community, in which we see that international guideline developers from all over the world are trying to find the best ways and methods together for developing guidelines. Although in the field of physical therapy, I think we can do a better job in trying to improve collaboration because individually in many countries, we're doing terrific jobs in developing guidelines, but still we could do a better job in collaborating within our profession. So that is one part of the paper. And the second aim of the paper is to provide a basic business case to see if we can set up a collaborative to work together in developing international evidence statements, which can be used by individual countries or to tailor these evidence statements to local recommendations for daily practice. And that's what the paper is about, and we're hoping that it will be like a starting point for further collaboration in our field. Thank you, Philip. Trudy, your thoughts? So my thoughts, Philip, on the paper are that it's very well written and very thorough. The authors have considered all the resources available, not only considered them, but evaluated how they might fit into this type of initiative. So I think that's very, very well done and very, very thorough. It certainly raises a couple of questions. I guess initially is, is ultimately what the aims and visions and missions would be internationally. I think that's important to establish. And obviously cost and funding issues come into that as well. So they're my kind of initial thoughts about what we might need to discuss today. But otherwise, the paper is, as I said, very thorough, very well written. Joe, your thoughts? I'd like to just confirm what Philip mentioned, the value of clinical practice guidelines in helping that clinical decision-making at the practice level. The feedback that I've received from instructors, both at entry level and at post-professional residency fellowship level, is that they actually really love the practice guidelines, and they've noticed how it's helped the progression from a novice clinician who's just learning the field to move them quicker into pattern recognition, quicker into making decisions about what they should be doing for evaluation, what they should be collecting for outcome measures, what's the best way to take the initial steps with managing this patient and have them move forward. So they're spending less time pondering and thinking and much more time actually assisting the patient because they have a direction of what's the initial approach to take. So that's a healthy and encouraging sign. Very good. Thank you, everyone. I, I'd like to start us off with a question that I think sort of gets to the heart of your paper, Philip, and that is we all are certainly advocates of clinical practice guidelines and see their potential benefits in our own environments. So, Philip, what are the true tangible advantages of international collaboration in the writing of guidelines? Well, I think the main point is that the evidence base is growing rapidly and we're really increasing that body of knowledge. There's a universal approach to recognize what 
the state-of-the-art physical therapy on a certain topic is. And that universal base is something I would like to take advantage of. So you always need tailoring of that evidence to the local circumstances, but we can use this international evidence base in countries where there's not a lot of resources to develop guidelines and they can use those international statements to speed up their recommendations for daily practice, but still allowing for tailoring to local circumstances. Trudy or Joe, comments regarding that issue? Uh, Trudy, I'm happy to comment. I would say the advantages of international statements of this sort would be that it provides recommendations for baseline treatment. And at the very least, what baseline treatment does is stop bad and harmful treatment. And we've seen that happen in various clinical guidelines where certain treatments have been recommended against because they're harmful. It's interesting what you mentioned, Trudy, the baseline care. I think getting back to Dan's original question about one tangible element of guidelines, it's allowing clinicians from a wide geographic base, potentially the world, to contribute data to one data bank to be analyzed by interested researchers. An example of this is in the United States, there's about 600 orthopedic surgeons across the U.S. that are performing a similar type of ACL revision surgery, and they're all contributing similar outcome data to one database sponsored by the professional association. And this is only possible because all the practitioners, all the surgeons are using the same measures, the same terminology for the diagnostic categorizations, and the same interventions. So it's an interesting, tangible, valuable benefit of practice guidelines is it allows the potential for data mining and for researchers in a wide geographic base to contribute to a national registry and then have that result, that practice-based research, so to speak, be analyzed and published. And this is the type of research that payers and policymakers have been looking for and are explicitly asking for. So again, just the benefit of practice guidelines is allowing us to standardize what we're calling something and how we're measuring it and what we're doing about it. One of the issues you addressed a few times in your paper, Philip, was the translation of clinical practice guidelines to low- and middle-income countries, which I think is an attractive notion to all of us. How do you see that practically working in countries where the healthcare systems are dramatically different from many of the European and more Western countries? How would that work practically, Philip? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point because we've been working in South Africa. There's quite a strong movement right now for creating clinical guidelines. And you do see that there's a specific need for tailoring because, as you said, the circumstances are completely different and the healthcare systems are different from the more developed or rich countries. I know Amy Stewart, who's one of my co-authors in that paper, she had a PhD student who looked into what was needed to inform the development of a guideline in South Africa on the topic of total knee replacement, I think it was. And you really see that there is a big advantage if you can use existing guidelines or existing universal evidence to inform the development of guidelines at a national level, even though the circumstances are quite different in a country like South Africa. And given the limited resources to develop guidelines themselves, I think these international statements could then be very helpful. Although I do really recognize that the different systems really makes it complex, but still I think it is something we can really aim for because we've seen from this example in South Africa that it does serve a purpose. Trudy or Joe, comments? 
I certainly took that as one of the main messages from your paper, Philip, in that one of the greater aims is to provide this service, if you like, or product for low and middle income countries who quite likely are unable to produce it for themselves. I certainly know, having been involved in producing them, how expensive they are. So I think that's a great aim for this and certainly even in just collecting and providing that evidence and having an international consensus on what that evidence means for physical therapy would be important. And then all that member country, if we're talking about WCPT member countries, would need to do would then be to adapt it to their situation. Joe, anything to add? You know, interesting. I have a bit of a practical example here that may highlight some of the discussion here is is that I've been invited to teach practitioners in China with regard to musculoskeletal care. And it's a little fascinating, but the interventions that we do in Western culture, I mean, simple things like strengthening, stretching, the evaluation procedures, the physical medicine, physical therapy type treatments we do, aren't part of their training in either traditional or Western medicine. And so it's something they're hungry for because their traditional medicine helps a large percentage of individuals, but not everyone. The real value of guidelines is like, okay, well, if we're going to influence a country that's developing their medical science, developing their physical therapy, physical rehabilitation science, what better way than to use evidence-based clinical practice guidelines to promote, okay, here's the guide, here's the standard of practice to use. And so in the proactive nature of that, the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy put in its strategic plan to start translating the clinical practice guidelines that they've recently published and the patient perspectives that are associated with that, translate that into Mandarin, Portuguese, Spanish. So this perspective on Sometimes it's just getting the word out there and for the countries that are looking for, hey, what's the best way to go? How do we move our world into a little bit more of the successes that they've had in the quote-unquote Western world? Joe, I think that brings up an excellent point. We've been talking about how dramatically different physical therapy cultures are across countries. And Philip, I'm sure this has been brought up in your discussions among your group. Yeah, yeah, I do recognize the differences. And cultural differences are not something you can change from today to tomorrow. That takes maybe a generation sometimes. So that's an interesting issue, which is something we may address in those international evidence statements, but probably only marginal because you cannot include everything in one of those brief statements we're planning to do because we're thinking of making very concise, brief evidence statements, which should be easy to use. And as I said before, just being the basis of further tailoring at the local level. Well, what I'd like to do is get your thoughts on one issue that's a bit peripheral to your paper, but obviously related. And Philip, I'd like to ask you to start first in talking about how we do a better job of translating information in clinical practice guidelines in a more systematic way into clinical practice, because as we know, we've got a wealth of clinical practice guidelines and many, many therapists not following the guidelines or in some cases not even knowing that they exist. If each of you would very briefly talk about how we better implement information in clinical practice guidelines, I think our listeners would be interested in your perspectives on this issue. So, Philip, please start. Yeah, well, that's a whole other ballgame and knowing that implementation is difficult and we've done some research on it, but there's a lot of more research to be done on getting better insight in what is necessary. I'd like to start off with the basic concepts and that's one of the things we found when we introduced clinical guidelines in the Netherlands, which is about 15 years ago, I think by now. 
And still until today, I still find that we have to convince practitioners that guidelines are meant to help them and not to impose certain beliefs on them. So it's not a cookbook, but it's supposed to help them. And once physical therapists are understanding that principle that they can use it as a reference and they should make their own decisions and they should have their own clinical decision-making process because they're responsible as professionals for what they're doing, but it's not the cookbook. And that's one of the main basic principles for implementation. So, um, well, let's stick to that basic statement then for now. Trudy? Yeah, that was certainly the topic of my PhD, implementation of clinical guidelines, and so one very close to my heart. I guess I would see in an international perspective that one of the things that tends to come out across cultures and in the implementation literature is the identification of gaps between current practice and what the guidelines are recommending. And that seems to be one of the fairly important processes to go through. And at least if you can identify gaps, then that enables you to target the messages and the implementation strategy to those gaps. So that would be the first, and that may not be too difficult to work out. The second biggest thing that I've learned across probably now 10 years of researching in this area is to keep the implementation strategy fairly simple and targeted to one or two of the behaviours that you're wanting to change rather than trying to change everything that the guideline recommends but the key things that are important for that culture or for that healthcare problem. And if you can identify those key things, you seem to have had a better effect in improving people practicing according to the guideline and ultimately, hopefully, in healthcare outcomes. So they would be the two things for me, um, identifying the gaps and targeting implementation to that. What strategy you use, I think, is going to vary on the culture and those have been well researched as to what strategies produce better effects. In an international perspective, I think certainly online strategies has to be something to be considered. Obviously, this initiative isn't going to be able to provide education at a sort of face-to-face level and that's not going to be possible but increasingly online strategies are used and are probably worthwhile considering um, given we're becoming more and more electronic so that would be probably my final point on that topic. Thank you Trudy. Joe? So here in the United States the governments have been looking for ways to balance their budgets, you know, collect more and spend less. One of the areas of course is spending less is healthcare and So part of spending less is cutting down on practices that don't work. And their mantra is they want to pay for what works. What physical therapists will do is commonly, at least in the United States, they'll do what they need to do to get paid and reimbursed for what they're doing. And as the payers start to change what they pay for and have guidelines drive what they're going to pay for, that inherently may change practice because of the incentives on that. So it'll be interesting to watch over the next few years, at least in the United States, is what's going to drive the changes in practice. Is it going to be basically the payer incentives? Okay, we're going to pay for this and we're not paying for the other things. And will people respond to that versus other incentives of just inherently wanting to do what's best for their patients? Thank you, Joe. I think we're going to move to a summary now. So, Philip, if you wouldn't mind starting. Well, what I think is an important issue in trying to get evidence into practice and clinical guidelines is one form of trying to get evidence into practice. And I think we're doing a good job, but there's still a lot of work to do. And for myself, having had a first discussion of our initiative at the World Physical Therapy Congress this summer in Amsterdam, and now having the paper published in Physical Therapy Journal, now we have to get started. What we're going to try to do is to 
start producing these evidence statements, which would not cost a lot of money and would be fairly easy to produce, and then go forward from that. So we've got some work to do. Thank you, Philip. Trudy? Yeah, I think the discussion's been very interesting. It's been fantastic to be able to listen to what's occurring in the States, and Philip obviously comes with a strong knowledge of what happens in Europe, and then, of course, here down under in Australia. I would see that in going forward from here would be to kind of have an overall vision or mission for what this initiative is. And it might be something as simple as what Philip said, we're going to produce two evidence-based clinical statements in fairly common conditions that are not necessarily controversial and see how that goes. Because certainly it would be important to do that and pilot it at least and say, hey, we've done this and it appears to have had an effect. But I think there's a great start there, both with the paper and judging from what Joe is saying, what Philip's saying and what I've heard being said internationally, we have the expertise now internationally to do this. We have the collaboration internationally to do this and we have the resources internationally to do it now. So it's the right time and we didn't have that 10 years ago. So I think... It's very doable and it's just probably solving the overall aim, content and mission and process issues and I'm sure you'll be away. Thank you, Trudy. And Joe, any comments? Yes, let me just echo what Trudy and Philip have said. It's encouraging to see and to be part of this international collaboration to promote the high standards of practice in our profession. As a representative of the orthopedic section of the American Physical Therapy Association and the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, I can confirm that the vision of both the ortho section and JSPT is aligned with the vision that both Philip and Trudy mentioned. Look to both the ortho section and JSPT for their support and help keep this momentum going. Thank you, Joe. I want to close now and simply say that I am grateful to all three of you for providing our listeners with a wonderful opportunity to learn more about clinical practice guidelines. And I want to thank all three of you for participating and making this such an intriguing and important discussion for the profession. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Send your comments or suggestions via email to ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include discussion podcast in the subject line. This has been a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.org dot net.